The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Today we're going to be looking at verses 26 and 27. Those of you who haven't been with us on a regular basis, we're just going through the book of James a few verses at a time. It's been a, a great study. James is very challenging and yet very practical. And there's some uniqueness to the book of James. So we're looking at verses 26 and 27. James didn't have verses and chapter breaks when he wrote 2,000 years ago, but uh, 26 and 27 actually is an appropriate conclusion to his theme he's been talking about in the first 25 verses as he does make a deliberate transition now to a new topic in James 2. So that chapter break is actually quite appropriate in the context. Uh, So we are in the book of James, and we've been talking about how James... uh, is unique in many ways as a man. He was not one of the twelve apostles, but became a prominent church leader in the church of Jerusalem after his literal blood brother Jesus died, rose again, and ascended into heaven, and then visited James, and James got saved. James is his life by putting his faith in Jesus Christ and then rose up in the early church. And now, after Jesus ascended into heaven, Uh, Some things happened in the area of Jerusalem where the Jerusalem church was that caused many of the believers there to spread out, move away, whether it was persecution, a famine, uh, and other hardships. And so you've got many of these Christian Jewish people uh, dispersing all over the place, all over uh, Israel and outside the land of Israel. And it's been 15 years probably since Jesus ascended. And so they've been waiting around looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's taken quite a long time. And maybe some of them are losing heart, losing patience, or getting their roots deep into the issues and concerns and the worries of this life, as Paul calls it, and maybe losing some focus and losing some of their zeal. And so James writes this letter uh, to remind them of what their priorities are and also to give them a shot in the arm to remind them of what uh, Christians should be about, what their business should be in this world, uh, and not to fall into a lull that can happen subtly, little by little, as you live in the world waiting in anticipation of the coming of Christ. And so uh, that's James's goal as he's talking to Christian Jewish believers spread all over outside of the Jerusalem and Palestine area. Another unique thing about James who wrote this book, I mentioned this earlier, and this is where I left off last time if you weren't with us, how James, one of 27 books in the New Testament, and it's only five chapters, and it's phenomenal if you think about it, with longer books in the Bible. The book of Romans is 16 chapters and Luke, the longest book in the New Testament with 24 chapters, but the most amount of words and Acts, 28 chapters. One unique thing about James that we addressed is that James has more imperatives than any other book in the New Testament by far. It's not even close. An imperative is a command. So we've already seen that in chapter 1. Uh, from the get-go, right out of the gate, we saw in verse 2 where he, he gives a command to every believer to consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And that was his super theme that he's been developing all throughout chapter 1, but he hits us with an imperative. As a matter of fact, there are 59 imperatives in the book of James. 59, which uh, is more than any book in the New Testament. And another unique thing about James is his imperatives are spread evenly throughout all five chapters. You've got like about 10 to 12 imperatives in every chapter of the book of James. So you just continually, we are being challenged and pummeled by the book of James of expectations from God. Things we should be doing and things we should not be doing as commanded by God. And so you shouldn't have any problem as you're going through the book of James, studying it or hearing it preached, saying, yeah, I heard your sermon and all that good information, but what's the practical application? 
It's like, hello, were you paying attention? <laughs> the practical application is all these things that James, actually the Spirit of God, are, is telling believers to do and not do. And where we're at today is no exception, is these holy divine imperatives that should rule our life for those of us who truly know God. And there's even imperatival implications where he doesn't use a specific imperative. And I would point you to verses 26 and 27 today as we study it, talk about its meaning, and then there are implications that we must do what it's talked about even though it's not a direct imperative in terms of the grammar. It is still expected of God that we should do these things, these three main things that are mentioned in this passage. So the book of James is loaded with commands and imperatives. So really what this is from James, it's a divine call to action to a whole bunch of Christians who were subtly being pulled into a sleep and a slumber as they were living in the world. And we need this reminder, don't we? I've been a Christian 25 years, and boy, I remember when I first got saved at age 19, I thought Jesus was coming when I was 20 years old. And it didn't happen. Well, okay, maybe next year. And next year. And then 25 years goes by. And then your perspective changes as a believer in the faith. And sometimes you get tired and weary and start questioning and go back to trying to pray and still be fervent about the coming of the Lord Jesus and living in light of His coming. And so this is very helpful from James just to kind of light our fire once again to recalibrate and get refocused on what the priorities are for the Christian life. And so let's go ahead and look at his just very appropriate yet distilled summary of what he's been talking about in all of chapter 1, beautifully uh, summarized in 26 and 27. And I call it really true religion. This is James, not really James, it's the Holy Spirit's definition of what true religion is. So let's go ahead and look at these uh, verses. He had just finished, by the way, talking about the Word of God and the Christian's appropriate response to hearing the Word of God. That's, that's the context. And the appropriate response is to listen carefully to the Word of God, have the Holy Spirit be our teacher regarding of the Word of God, and then there's a call to action in light of what God has said through His Word. And part of that call to action is in verse 26 and 27. What James tells us is true religion. Let's go ahead and look at it. He says, if anyone thinks himself... By the way, he's talking to believers. He's talking to professing believers okay he's not talking to unbelievers in the world he's not talking about uh, secularists he's not talking primarily to people who have false religion because there are very fervently religious people in the world who are not christian that is not his direct audience he's talking to professing believers and indeed to believers many of whom he probably knew because he's their former pastor so this applies to us if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man or this person's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. To visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Wow. So he makes a contrast here. Uh, false religion and true religion. He's not giving a comprehensive summary. He's not including everything that is involved in true religion and false religion. He's really, he's just making a priority of specific things that they need to hear because James knows his audience. So it's not a comprehensive summary, but it's priorities. Here are key things you need to keep in mind. They're kind of big picture priorities. Conduct and character. 
This kind of conduct, this kind of character should characterize your life if you're a true believer. And he also goes negative and then positive. This is false religion. This is true religion. And so the negative he gives first. And that's verse 26. So uh, I just came up with three principles out of the text that James is talking about just to kind of guide our thinking about true religion. And point number one is verse 26. True religion is manifest or made clear. True biblical religion, true Christianity, whatever you want to call it, true religion is manifest by the words we speak. Verse 1 Uh, verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, if any of you people in the church, if any of you people calling yourselves Christians think yourself to be religious, if you really think you're spiritual, you're proud of your spirituality and say, I'm a Christian. If anyone uh, thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. A couple key phrases there. By the way, he's uh, true religion is manifest by the words we speak. He's getting that truth across by way of contrast. He's giving the negative. If you use words the wrong way while you're trying to be religious, you reveal your heart. If you've got wrong words, if you can't control your mouth while you're doing your religious duties, while you're living your so-called religious Christian life, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, well, let's start there with that word religious because Uh, It needs to be defined. It's a rare word in the New Testament. It can be used in a good way and also in a negative way. And again, as always, the word is defined by its context and how it is used. It kind of has a negative connotation in verse 26, uh, but it has a positive connotation in verse 27, the same word. So all religion is not bad. No doubt you have heard, I've probably done this myself as a Bible teacher, on more than one occasion, where the preacher, teacher, evangelist says, well, the, the difference about Christianity and all the other religions is the world, in the world is that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Now, you've probably heard that. I have. And there, there's some great truth to that, really. Because Islam does not emphasize a personal relationship with uh, Allah. I invited Allah into my heart. You, you will never hear a Muslim say that. That just ain't going to happen. That's just, they don't even think that way. They don't have this personal, intimate, one-on-one uh, intimacy with uh, Allah. He's, as, a, as a matter of fact, he's transcended. He is not accessible. They, they fear him. He's not their friend. Christianity says God is our friend. Jesus is our friend. Jesus is our elder brother. So there is truth to that statement that Christianity is uh, not a relationship. It's, I mean, it's not a religion, but it is a relationship. I would say, well, it's primarily uh, a relationship. But Christianity and true Christianity is a religion because that's what James tells us right here. There's legitimacy. So the word religion is not bad in and of itself. Religion is not a bad word. It just depends on how you define it. And that's what James is doing here. He's giving us a proper definition of true religion, but also contrasting it with false religion. So that gives us some balance in our thinking. And the word for religion here, usually uh, religious kind of service that's legitimate that is seen in the New Testament is a different Greek word referring to worship or or bowing down or praying to God. And so that's why this is a unique word for religion. And the way it's used uh, in different contexts, this word for religion really is trying to accentuate and highlight external visible acts of religious worship, whether they're good or bad. So it's external, visible things that you see people do as they worship their God, whether it's the true God or the false God. That's what he means by this word religion. 
external visible acts of worship, which could include rites, rituals, uh, religious traditions, fastings, alms, prayers, uh, acknowledging and celebrating holy days. Going For us, going to church, that would be an external visible religious activity that the supermajority of Americans do. Yeah, I go to church. Therefore, I am religious. That's what he's talking about. So, but he wants to expose false kinds of worship. And the falsity to this kind of worship that James wants to expose has to do with some uh, hypocrisy. There's a, an external uh, practice, an exhibition of religious activity, but it's not consistent with what's coming out of the heart and out of the mouth. And he's trying to expose that. And that's going on in the church. He sees it. He wants to expose it. That's been true for 2,000 years, by the way. You'll see this in any church, any legitimate church, any good church, any bad church. It's always there. Because people are sinful. And people need to be reminded. And this isn't just total hypocrites that need this reminder. He's also talking to true, bona fide, legitimate, born-again Christians who need to be reminded. So that's all of us. So this calls us to self-examination. Like Paul said, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourself to, to look at your religion. Is it merely just external? Or is it consistent with what's going on in your heart and also what comes out of your mouth? And so that is one of the barometers of assessing and diagnosing true religion is the words that come out of our mouth. Boy, the words reveal a lot, don't they? Jesus said that the words reveal the heart. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks, is what Jesus said. And so that James is saying the same thing here. So if anyone thinks himself to be religious by virtue of all of his religious activities, and he goes to seven different Bible studies, and always learning, and always taking it in, and listens to Christian radio, and goes to church faithfully, those aren't inherently bad, but they can be if you've got the wrong heart and the wrong priorities, and specifically if you've got the wrong words coming out of your mouth in the context of all of your religious duties. And that's the middle part of verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, it's like the bridle, the thing that you stick in the horse's mouth so that you can control the horse. This is literally James is saying you need to stick that bridle in your own mouth. Wow, what a vivid graphic metaphor and picture. You have got to control your mouth, Christian. Because a Christian or a professing Christian who doesn't control his mouth and is just always talking is hypocritical and defies the very profession of his religion. Now, James has an issue with some of the people that he knew here because they were just talking too much. Because this is a theme in almost every chapter. James keeps talking about those who talk too much and talk the wrong way. Because you already mentioned this in verse 19. Uh, this you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. See, there's a kind of uh, speaking that he's addressing and confronting there of professing Christians who speak too quickly, who speak flippantly, and who have outbursts of anger by virtue of their words. And it's manifest and it's public and people see it. And it's inconsistent with the Christ that they profess. So that's what he's addressing here. There's just too much talking going on for, for some of you and it's not consistent with true faith and true religion. Doing a lot of talking, but it's not consistent with true religion. So that's what he wants to get at is the priority of the mouth does not bridle. As a matter of fact, if you, in, the, in the rest of the book, James is going to address the tongue. Well, He's going to do it at length in chapter 3, so we'll actually reserve it for then. But the kind of bridling, the kind of language that James wants to rein in here is professing Christians or Christians who do not control their mouth, they always want to talk and be heard, they are experts 
and self-appointed authorities on religious and spiritual topics. That's kind of the context as he goes through this book. Uh, Some of the commentators who put it in context say it this way, the kind of talking uh, that's going on that James wants to deal with, it's talk, those who talk too much, it is destructive, it breeds disunity, it's angry outbursts, it is flippant with respect to people's opinions about what the Bible really means and how people should really be living as Christians and in the church. It is critical speech, it is judgmental speech. He says that later in the book explicitly. Christians quit judging other Christians, especially by virtue of your forked tongue. For your sharp tongue, quit gossiping, quit complaining about other people, other people in the church and other believers. Calvin says it this way, it's this being prone and given to defaming others in the church under the guise of a religious superiority. Calvin had it down 500 years ago. Beautiful. And James says we shouldn't have it in the church. Proverbs is great. I just love the book of Proverbs. Uh, You should be in it all the time. Just great practical reminders. Much of Proverbs deals with the tongue, self-control of the tongue, how we should view our tongue. Proverbs 10.19 When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. When there are many words... If you talk too much, sin is unavoidable. It's inevitable. But the one who restrains his lips is wise. It's hard to do, isn't it? It is hard to do. As a matter of fact, James says it's impossible on your own. Here's a challenge for you and a challenge for me. See how long you can go and see how long I can go as soon as church is over at 1230 before you or I talk about somebody else behind their back in a negative way. And maybe that the Holy Spirit will convict you in the spot or convict me in the spot. Mm, okay. Wow, I made it to 135. Wow, I made it to Tuesday. But really, James says we shouldn't have any of that among the body, among believers. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 12. This is really serious. Uh, Jesus talked on this. You know, and a lot of times as Christians, we just have, uh, we, we have taken gossip uh, and maligning people to a science and to an art where we, we do it, and many times it's not even detected. It's not discerned by other people. They're influenced by it negatively, and sometimes we're not even aware we're doing it because we are self-deceived. And so it can be very subtle. It doesn't always have to be overt. Those are the ones we can catch, but ones that aren't overt or easily identified can be just as destructive. They're just little seeds of destruction or little seeds that Satan will use to divide a church. The mouth. Words. So a great reminder from Jesus Himself in Matthew 12. Look at verse 34. Uh, verse 34, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? Okay, the second part of verse 34. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So your, your words will manifest what's in your heart, your attitude, your convictions, your beliefs, what you really think about that person deep down. Behind the facade, verse 35, the good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. Good words, bad words, blessed words, maligning words. Verse 36, and I, Jesus, say to you that every... This is huge, verse 36. And I say to you that every careless word, every flippant word, every small word, notice it's every word, 
that men shall speak. They shall render account for it in the day of judgment. Isn't that scary? Every single word you ever spoke, you have to render account for it before the Lord Jesus Christ. Yikes. Now, if you're a Christian and you know Jesus Christ personally and you believe that He died on the cross and got punished by God the Father for all the sin of the world and then He was buried and rose again from the dead and He died for sin... That includes all of our wrong words, our gossip, our malicious uh, conversation about people is covered under the blood of Jesus Christ if you know Jesus personally. Isn't that wonderful? If you had to give account before God for every careless, sinful word you've said in your life, um, that's why heaven is for eternity. This will take a long time to give an account for all the people who've done all this stuff. Uh, But thank God that through the death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection, if you know Him personally, Your sins are washed away in His blood and in His death. So the truly born-again Christian doesn't have to fear the wrath of God by virtue of your sin, including your gossip and maligning or whatever else. But you still have to give an account because there will be rewards and a lack of rewards that are given at the judgment for the believer in heaven. You won't be punished for your sin, but there will be judgment and an account. And that's why also we need to be conscious in the words of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 of always confessing our sin, always examining our heart, always going before the throne of grace every single day. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my, uh, my gossip and how I maligned this person and this believer this week or uh, this government official and on and on. But when Scripture says malign no one, that is sinful. And the promise of 1 John 1, 9 is if you mean it and you confess it and you identify it to God, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness because of the work of Jesus Christ. That's awesome. So the Christian can read this command of Jesus, which is very threatening and scary in a gospel context, render account on the day of judgment. Verse 37, For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. So it's a great sobering reminder for all of us to guard our mouth, to guard our words. And it really starts with guarding our heart, confessing on a regular basis, asking God to lead us through His Spirit, cleanse us by the blood of Christ. So let's go back to James chapter 1. Um, and James says that this kind of person actually could very well be a believer that he's talking about who has this false religion that's no more by their talk and their words in the context of church and Religion and spirituality that is judgmental and critical and with an air of superiority. And usually, James says, these people are like this and they don't even know it. Why? Because he says in the middle of verse 26, they are self-deceived. They've deceived their own heart. What, what he means by that is they make these religious spiritual judgments based on their supposed knowledge of the Bible and they look down their nose condemning everybody else and those in the church and other Christians and other professing believers. And then when you challenge them on it or confront them on it, they don't see it. It's a blind spot. That's what he's saying in the middle of verse 26. They've deceived their own heart. They literally believe it. They can't see it. The only thing that's going to allow them to see it is when they hear the truth and the Spirit of God removes the blinders so they can be convicted properly and understand what they've been doing that is actually sinful when they thought what they were doing was very religious and called for. Well, who can be self-deceived? Well, any Christian can be self-deceived. Every single one of us. Take heed lest you fall, Paul reminds us. We can be self-deceived. We can all have blind spots in any given area. That's why we need accountability 
That's why we need uh, ongoing feedback and interaction from other people. That's why we need to be continually in prayer, asking the Spirit of God to soften us, to teach us, to sensitize our conscience. We need to be in the Word, which is the mirror of God's holy law that we look into to see how ugly we really are and where our warts are of sin so that we can have an accurate picture so we aren't self-deceived. By the way, that's one of the most dangerous kinds of deception is self-deception. Because you can't do anything about it. You're just dug down, trenched in, and you believe I am right. So it's, it's very dangerous. Self-deception. And then James concludes, you know, a person like this, whether he's a Christian or a professing Christian in the church, even though he's got a lot of religious activity going on, by the way, he's not, James said earlier, uh, be, a, be doers of the word. We're just coming off that context. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. These people are doers, but they're not doers of the word. They're doing all kinds of religious activity. Well, I go to church and I go to Bible study and I do this and I do that. But they're not doing the Word. They're doing their own convictions. They're doing their own opinion. They're doing their own agenda. They're doing human tradition. They're doing human philosophy or whatever it is. But they're not doing the Word. And that's where verse 27 is going to tell us what true religion is according to the Word. God's mandates, not my own agenda. So they are doers. They're just not doers of God's truth. And all this doing of religious activity... In the end, if it's uh, with the wrong words, wrong attitude, wrong heart, speaking divisively, then he says at the end of verse 26, he said, this religion is worthless. It is worthless. It is vain. It is fruitless. It is empty. It doesn't accomplish anything. Actually, the only thing it accomplishes is spreading disunity and division. And he says, it is worthless. We can't have it. So there's a great reminder to all of us to examine ourselves to see whether we were in the faith or just to examine ourselves before God. And actually, like the psalmist who prayed, you know, praying for forgiveness, feeling guilty, and the psalmist uh, a few times prayed, God, forgive me of my sins, and he confessed his sins. But he also confessed for unknown sins. And God, I know there's sins I've committed I don't even know about. Please reveal those to me and forgive me of those sins as well. Or sins of omission. Not just sins of commission that we are aware of. So that's tremendously important. True religion is manifest by the words we speak. So let's remind ourselves throughout the day, asking the Holy Spirit to monitor us, to convict us regarding every single word. And thank God if you've got a partner, a family member, a friend, a spouse who can be your sounding board and hold you accountable, an iron sharpening iron as you walk through life seeking to please God in this area that is very difficult to do on a regular basis. Having holy words before God. Okay, let's go on to point number two there, and that's in verse 27 at the first part. And that's true religion is manifest by the love we show. True religion is manifest by the love we show. Love shown towards others. So he talks about here's false religion, and then here's true religion. Here's one great example of true religion, verse 27. This is pure and undefiled religion. Religion that, pure and undefiled, that is religion that pleases God. Can you, isn't that an amazing thought? That we can actually do things that please God. I've actually talked to Christians who have told me, and even church leaders over the years, that, well, actually everything we do is like filthy rags. That's what Isaiah says. Everything we do is filthy rags. Think no, there's actually things I can do that please God and give Him joy. How do I know that? It's in the Bible. How do I know that? John Piper wrote a whole book about it. 
There's like 25 things that we can do that legitimately please God. That is amazing. A holy God. That idea that uh, everything we do is filthy rags, that's actually talking about an unbeliever who's trying to please and assuage a God to earn forgiveness. The Christian is, that is not true of the Christian. The Christian can do things that please God. And that, according to Paul in Romans 12, is true religion that is pure before God. Our very lifestyle that is an act of worship, living sacrifices that please God. So that's what that means. Pure, undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. Behavior, worship, religion, spirituality that pleases God, puts Him on display, glorifies God. Is it possible? Absolutely. Here it is. Here are some main priorities. Pure and undefiled, by the way, it's, this is the kind of religion that is not contaminated. It is not soiled. It is not poisoned. Well, what is, what is it contaminated, soiled, and poisoned with? Well, that's verse 26. That was religion that was contaminated, poisoned, and soiled. Well, what was it poisoned with? Self. That's what poisons it. Self. When you have a selfish agenda, it's all about me. You're not other-oriented. That's the distinctive here of verse 27 of true religion that pleases God is other-oriented. It's not about self. You're not thinking about yourself all the time. It's God. You're thinking about God. It's other-oriented. What pleases Him? What what are His priorities? I live for Him. It's other-oriented thinking of others. That's, That's where true religion is. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. Not just our God, it's our Father. We have an intimate personal relationship with God. And by the way, that is a prerequisite for pleasing God in our religious activities and worship. You have to know God personally through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you cannot please God. If you don't know Jesus Christ personally, you don't believe in the Gospel, you're not a born-again Christian, no matter what you do, in all your works, in all your sacrifices, in all your social uh, justice pursuits. You cannot please the God of the universe because you don't know Jesus Christ personally. You don't know God as Father. You must believe the Gospel first and be born again and be one of His children. Then, you and I, then we can please God. That is true religion. Knowing Him personally. Very important. So there's two positive things and then there's a negative of that typify true Spiritual, pleasing religion. First one uh, is the middle of verse 27. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. And that is to visit. To visit. I don't know what your translation says. But the Greek word, it's pretty interesting, comes from the word episkopos. Where we get the word episcopal, which is a bishop, which is an overseer, which is an elder, which is somebody a leader in the church who oversees, takes care of, provides for, protects, nurtures, knows what's going on, is doing it on a regular basis as a habit and a lifestyle, totally committed to it, totally giving their life to it. That's where that word comes from, isn't that? You see the English word visit, it just doesn't do it justice, does it? Visit, that's not just going to, oh yeah, there's an orphanage over there and I'm just going to drive by and sit down and have a chat for ten minutes and bring a lollipop and leave and I'll never see him again. It's not that superficial. This is a very specific word. It is, uh, and by the way, uh, the verse being used here is in the present tense, and it means it's an ongoing, committed lifestyle. This should be a, a lifestyle, an attitude of every Christian and of the church. Visiting, overseeing, nurturing, providing for, protecting for, looking out for, taking care of, making a priority of. 
the most needy in all of society. And in James' day, it was orphans. And there were many of them. Orphans. Particularly younger children who cannot fend for themselves, can't provide for themselves. God has a special heart for orphans and those who are Christians, those who are of Christ, need to be like Christ and have the same heart for orphans that God does, that Jesus does. And we need to visit orphans. So this is a mandate for every Christian, a mandate for every church. And not just visit, but we need to welcome, take in. We need to, this needs to be a mission for the church in an ongoing manner till Jesus comes again. And I look around the world and I'm, I'm actually pleased because uh, those who are doing most of the work that I am aware of uh, to meet the real long-term needs of orphans in the world are coming from the Christian church. And that's been true all throughout history. Some of our greatest pastors and preachers throughout church history had special hearts for orphans. Many times we know them for just being great missionaries and pastors and actually on the side, not on the side, they were totally committed to this ministry to orphans because they knew it was a mandate of God. They knew that was the heart of God. And we need to do the same. So we've got to make it a priority. Caring for orphans. Um, my family and I, we've been reading a book by Tim Tebow. You either love him or hate him. So anyway, but <laughs> it's a good story and very exciting, edifying for the whole family. Yeah, the things about him, like his physical prowess, his amazing personality, his feats athletically are amazing and memorable. But actually what the best theme woven throughout the entire story in every chap, uh, chapter is he's, he grew up in a solid Christian home. Dad was a pastor, still is. Dad was a missionary. And Tim and his whole family... They were on the mission field in the Philippines when uh, Tebow was younger. And one of the main ministries they had was establishing an orphanage to meet the needs of all the orphans there in the Philippines. So that's been probably 20 plus years. And so it's just kind of neat to read that story. This whole family was committed to this and their entire Christian community and their local church. And it's not just a one-time thing. Over 20 years they've maintained this relationship with this orphanage and the orphans in the area in which they served and are still doing it to this day. It's awesome. So that's just one example. So we need to be visiting orphans. Uh, another, I mean, there are practical ways that we can take care of orphans today, and society is much different today than it was 2,000 years ago. Um, even doing little things that we can, contributing to Samaritan's Purse. Franklin Graham, when he's given out millions of boxes to orphans around the world, that's really fulfilling the mandate of this passage in one small way. And him and his ministry team, they love those children. They go to be with them. They spend time with them. They pray with them. They meet their physical needs. They also give them the greatest need they need to hear, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. People's lives are changed for eternity. So he understands that mandate. So even contributing in little ways, giving to that ministry, praying for that ministry. Uh, also, other practical things of adopting children. Adopting children. There are orphans all over the world. That's something that uh, Christian parents should always consider as an option and be praying about. Not every Christian uh, couple is called an adopted child because it is a special calling, but at, at a minimum, every Christian couple should be praying to God. God, do you want us to add to our family through adoption? We will leave that to you. We'll do whatever you want us to do. And sometimes he'll say, no, not you, but maybe you could help somebody else do it. And then there are other times where God prompts Christian couples to do that very thing. Rescuing a life snatched out of death and misery from another part of the world. It's an awesome ministry. I even know people who are foster parents who are Christians. 
taking them in for two to three years. Or maybe it's five years, the most formidable years of their life while they're young, influencing them with the Gospel, Christianity, love, the love of Christ, and then letting them go. So there are practical things we can do and even that you can do. Another thing that I had mentioned is you know, Walt, our very own Walt Heine, who's down in uh, Mexico, and Scott Snyder went there a couple of years ago to visit the orphanage there, and Walt keeps telling me, man, you need to bring some people down there. So we really, I seriously want to do that in August or this summer. Bring a team of GBF people down there to go and be in dialogue right now and be praying uh, with Walt and Nancy and what can we do as a church to just help in a little way uh, these orphans in Mexico. So some of you have shown interest in that. We will keep praying that we can do that in a real and practical way. So this pleases God. Uh, love for orphans. Um, let's look at uh, the heart of God. Look at Deuteronomy 10. I love this. I want you to see it for yourself. Take care of widows. Take care of orphans. Not because it's good or the right thing to do, primarily. Deuteronomy 10 tells us why we need to do this. Uh, actually, starting at verse 16. And here's Moses talking the very words of God to the people. Verse 16, Circumcise then your heart and stiffen your neck no more. Quit being callous. Be softened, believer. Why? Verse 17, because of who God is. Because of this God you profess to know personally. And then he goes into this litany of the characteristics or the attributes of what God is truly like. It is amazing. Because this is who God is, this is how we should behave. Well, what is God like? The true God that we know personally through Jesus Christ. Verse 17, well, for the Lord or Yahweh your God is the God of gods. He's the supreme God. He's really the only God. He's Lord of lords. He's totally sovereign. He's in control of all things. He's the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Isn't that great? That's who our God is. Well, I had a challenging week. Man, I've got huge problems in my life. Well, you've got a God who is the Lord of lords, the great and the mighty and the awesome God who's bigger than your problems, your challenges, and, and my trials. He's a sufficient God. We've got to keep leaning on Him and crying out to Him. The awesome God who does not show partiality or favoritism nor take a bribe. Verse 18, God, He executes justice. Here it is. Here's what He does. Verse 17 is who He is. And then to typify what God does to show His very holy character is verse 18. He ex Of all the things in the world that could have been chosen of what God does, verse 18 says He executes justice for the orphan and the widow. So God's love and special, unique care, compassion, heart for the orphan and the widow. It's a unique love that God has for the most needy in society. We also need to have the same heart for the orphan and the widow and shows His love for the alien or the sojourner by giving Him food and clothing. The common denominator in all three of those are those who are in need, those who are needy, those who can't provide for themselves, those who are not self-sufficient. That's a mark of true love that flows from the heart of God. Meeting the needs of orphans and widows. Going back to James, this is true religion. Not just visiting, but taking them in. Oh, by the way, that word for visit 
is the same, exact same word used in Matthew 25, verse 36, verse 43, where at the end of the age, on judgment day, when God is judging all the sheep and the goats, and there are true believers and there are false believers, and Jesus reveals who's true and who's false, and, and a lot of it has to do with the way they live their life, the way they manifest love towards self or love towards others. And the example he gives is... Uh, and he uses that very word to visit. During your lifetime, you did not visit those who are in need. During your lifetime, you did visit those who are in prison and in need. And that was a mark of being a true believer. Exact same word. So this is pure and undefiled religion that pleases God to visit orphans and widows. And widows are those who don't have a provider. Uh, many times they have a child they got to take care of and they can't work a job and so they can't make enough money to pay their bills and they are totally needy and dependent. And if they are in the church and if they are believers in the church, the church needs to help them, assist and aid them and even at times even take care of them. Especially if they are in the church and they're true believers and they're connected with the local body, they should not primarily, by God's design, being primarily dependent upon the state or the government. But we need to be taking care of our own. And that's what uh, Paul says several times, Galatians and other places. He says it needs to start with the house. You know, take care of the needs of people, but it needs to start with the household of God, especially believers, especially our own, especially our own spiritual family. That is the priority. We start with those who are in our church. That's why God in His wisdom has many local churches everywhere. There should be churches, local churches everywhere. So that they're starting with their own spiritual family, meeting their own spiritual needs within the confines of their local church first and making sure that every widow is taken care of and every orphan is taken care of and every homeless person in that spiritual family is first taken care of. Because you can't save the whole world. Jesus said that. The poor will always be with you. You can't meet the needs of every orphan, every widow, every poor person. It's got to start in the household of God. You've got to be faithful stewards there. It's clear, the command and mandate given to elders, 1 Peter 5 and other places, that as they stand before the throne of God to be judged for their work, first and foremost, it's the work that they did over their local church. The sheep allotted to your care. I am not responsible for every poor person in the Bay Area. And that's why we need many churches, many churches, many outposts of the kingdom of Christ working together, cooperating together. That's one of the distinctives of GBF is getting to know like-minded biblical churches in our area and partnering with them. And we've been doing that. We've been cultivating relationships with local churches. And it's wonderful to do it. We can't do it all on our own. Too many people. And one of those mandates is to take care of widows. Notice, in their distress, especially when there are times of real need. And Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy 5. In 1 Timothy 5, actually God mandates that every church actually has a formal widow policy, taking care of widows. Paul's very specific. And there's qualifications. Age 60, if they're a true widow indeed, they have specific needs. And also they've exemplified a certain godly life and they haven't been idle. They've washed the, uh, the feet of the saints. Then they are qualified to be a widow indeed, to be put on the widow's list for someone for us to take care of as a church. And we as elders actually have talked about a widow's ministry, a widow's list, starting first with the widows in our church. And also we can't forget about widowers either because sometimes they have very unique needs and many times they are in distress at the loss of a dear one, a loved one. That's where our heart needs to be. That's true religion. That pleases God. Being other-oriented, caring about real needs and other people. And then finally, what else about True, uh, pure and true religion in the sight of God. Well, visiting orphans and widows in their distress and 
So that's how we treat others. Well, how do we treat self? What's the priority? Well, that's the end of verse 27. To keep oneself unstained by the world. And the world there, the word world, cosmos, is used different ways many times in the New Testament. And again, it always has its meaning by virtue of the context. And here, the world is talking about the fallen world. The sinful, satanically controlled system of the world that hates God, that is actually controlled by Satan and lies in the lap of the wicked one, says First John. So there, and even John 14, Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. That's this evil, systematic, satanic system of ideologies, beliefs, priorities, desires that is just hell-bent on evil, defying God, resisting God all the time. And that point number three, by the way, true religion is manifest in our hatred for sin. And I did say hatred. Because God hates sin in Psalm chapter 5. Paul hates sin. That's the word he used, hate. He hates the sin in him. He hates it when he sins and does things that are wrong. That's Romans chapter 7. He hates it. You need to despise sin. I need to despise sin. Hate it with a vengeance. Not tolerate it. Not allow it. Not just, oh shucks. It's hate it with a vengeance and a passion. And many times we just need to pray to God. God, give me a holy hatred for my own sin. God, help me despise it. To loathe it. So when it comes to actually thinking about self and true religion, it's not talking and yapping and showing how much we know and what an authority we are. When it comes to self with true religion, it's a self-examination. Get this. Hold on. It's hatred of self. Some people have a major problem with that statement. Wow, that's, that's undermining self-esteem. No, that's what Jesus said in the Gospels in Luke. Deny yourself. Hate yourself if you love me. That's the extreme that needs to happen. It's an honest evaluation of self and you realize I have sin living in me. I live for self. I should be living for God. I hate my sin. That's our attitude towards ourself. And we need to be unstained by the world. And by the way, the word world, as I was saying, was the fallen world's system. It's actually the priorities of the world. Uh, For example... Things that typify the way this world runs as dictated by Satan from on high. And most people don't even realize that they are a part of the satanic system because they don't even believe in the devil, but they're being pawns and run by him anyway. And his desires and worldly desires are ambition, success, personal fulfillment, wealth, materialism, fame, recognition, sensuality, popularity. These are all evil. These are mindsets, attitudes, priorities, lifestyles, aspirations by which we conduct and plan our life and around these things to achieve these things. That's a very worldly, satanic way to live. It defies God. It doesn't please Him. It doesn't glorify Him. And it's all the common denominator in all these things. It's living for self, not for God. I guess if I could sum it up, that's true religion. It's not living for self. It's living for God. It's living for God's glory. It's living for the advancement of the church, the advancement of the kingdom, of the gospel. It's living in redemptive service towards others. That's true religion. By virtue of our faith in Jesus Christ, knowing Him personally. Not living for self. Not living for self. Not living for self. So easy to do is live for self, isn't it? I don't know if any of you saw it. I hate to bring this up again. So, uh, the Broncos played on Thursday. And, so, and they upset the Jets. And uh, the commentator during the game said, 
This Tim Tebow guy is the most, this is the most mind-boggling and polarizing figure in NFL history. And he was baffled by that. So then after the game, and the Broncos won on a Tim Tebow touchdown at the very end of the game, and Mile High Stadium just goes berserk as they're cheering Tim Tebow on. And then there's five commentators for ESPN or whoever it was, and they, they interview Tebow. And he's sitting down. This is an 11-minute interview. And they are just pummeling with, and interrogating him. With, and they're just really trying to stump him up and make him look like a fool is kind of what I was getting at or what it looked like. And, and I think four of these guys are former NFL players because they just don't get this guy. You're doing everything wrong. I mean, those are the questions. You're doing everything wrong. And one guy said, why do people hate you so much? It's either they either love you or hate you, but why do they hate you so much? Is it your, your bad throwing arm? Is it your faith? What? I don't get it. And so for 11 minutes, they're trying to stump him up and make him put his foot in his mouth, and he never, he never did. And at the very end, somebody else, one more commentator, tries to stump him up. And oh, and the, the way he started out the interview was somebody asked him a question like that. Why do people hate you so much? And he said, well, first things first, I want to thank the Lord Jesus Christ, my Savior. And then he went on to answer the question. <laughs> Kept doing that. Uh, and then at the very end of the conversation, uh, somebody said, doesn't this bother you, all this criticism you're getting and all this hatred? And on and he said, no, I, I learned long ago. You know, my parents taught me, you know, you can't uh, deal with things that you can't control, so you just don't let it bother you. And I can only worry about things that I can control and what my priorities are. And just a great answer. He said, you know what, this, this really isn't important. This football stuff isn't what's most important. I'll tell you what's important in my life. He goes, we have a great platform here, being in the NFL and stardom and all that stuff. That's all nice and rosy and it's great and it's fun and I appreciate it. And I do want to be a good steward of it and take advantage of it. And I do, unlike Charles Barkley, want to be a role model to younger kids. But the most important thing in life for me is the orphanage that we have over in the Philippines. And we just built a hospital there and ministering to those kids and changing their life. And all these commentators, they, for the first time, they didn't have anything to say. They're just... Thank you. Thanks, Tim Tebow. Congratulations on the hospital. Let's go to a commercial. Here's Skippy Peanut Butter. Uh, he just made him look foolish. But, but he's honest. He's speaking from the heart. For him, this is just a game. It's fun. It's great. It's temporary. What really matters is the eternal things in this orphanage that God is doing in the Philippines was just absolutely awesome. So you can see that on YouTube if you want. So anyway, there's Tim Tebow. He's just you know a professing believer in the world. And... Why, here's the answer. Why are you hated by so many people? Because there's so many people that hate your Christianity. And you're, the only way to heaven is through Jesus. And you must repent of your sin. They despise that. They hate that. And there are millions of people who want Him to fall. Who want Him to compromise. To discredit Christianity and discredit the Bible. To appease their conscience before a holy God. That's what's going on. And they should have let me answer that question. But anyway... But their lifestyle, their family's ministry and having a heart for orphans and widows and true religion is incredibly admirable and is a legitimate role model for the whole watching world because that is true and pure religion that pleases God. That is awesome. One last comment I wanted to make that was just kind of interesting. We talked about true religion here. And there's just a beautiful balance. Uh, it's visiting Orphans and widows. Now, are Christians the only ones that, vid- uh, that visit orphans and widows? No. We've got all kinds of social workers and social justice and whatever you want to call them out in the world, right? The difference is 
the balance. Don't just be a do-gooder and doing social justice, meeting the needs of orphans and widows, but there also has to be a personal righteous before God that goes with it. That is the complement. Because you've got all kinds of social justice going on and social workers who don't have any consideration for righteousness before a holy God remaining unstained by the world. They don't care about their morality. Just I think about the occupied Wall Street movement right now. At least what the news is showing us. Really, it's one big social activist movement and apparently it is just riddled with all kinds of immorality, uh, even murder and rape and all kinds of stuff going on under those tents they have exposed. So there's a, a movement of social justice without the second part, which is the balance of being unstained by the world. But then there are those who want to be unstained by the world, aren't there? I, I just think all throughout church history you've had monasticism or asceticism where uh, people go hide in caves or isolate themselves for long periods of time and even people who aren't Christians trying to do this to be pure and to be holy and to not be stained by the world so they isolate themselves from the world and they're not going to have any contact with the world. They think that's the answer to being unstained by the world is totally withdrawing from people and withdrawing from society and the world. That is wrong. Because we, yes, we need to be living unstained from the world but we don't withdraw from society and the world and abandon the world. So there's the balance. You can't live this monastic life and you can't just be a social do-gooder. They have to go together. And you can only do that if you know Jesus Christ personally and live out the balance under the power of the Spirit of God. It's the only way to do it. That is what pleases God. And I pray that for our little body and our congregation that God in His grace and in His mercy gives us this heart of compassion that we saw in Deuteronomy 10 in an ever-growing manner so that we aren't living for self. We're living in redemptive service to others. We are conscious of the evil world and we want to abstain from sin and pursue holiness because we know when we love a holy God, we have the Spirit of God living in us and we don't want to drag Him into sin. But it's all by His grace. And it's also all for His glory. Let's go ahead and pray and commit our time to Him. Father, we thank You for our time together. We thank You for uh, the book of James, just how unique it is. How You have preserved it for 2,000 years, sometimes by the blood of saints who have gone before us. God, may we never forget that. Also by the providential work of Your Holy Spirit, now we can hold a Bible in our hands. Unlike in James' day where nobody had... Bible or Scripture to hold in their hands. They just had to listen very carefully. So we thank You for this treasure. We thank You for the reminder that we can be informed that, first of all, amazingly, we can please You. We can please You by our worship, by our words, by our actions. God, help us through Your Holy Spirit to continually examine ourselves, expose our shortcomings, our sin, our compromises. Show us where we live for self, where we need to live for You. Empower us through Your Spirit to live in service and love towards others, especially the real needy among us. And thank You that You promised to meet all of our needs. You are the sufficient and gracious God. We commit our day to You. We thank You for it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.